All right. Well, I know you've heard this before, but image is everything, right? It's all about image. It's how people see you. They perceive you. Uh, we we hear this message all the time. It's it's in the media. Uh, it's reinforced by friends. It's in our school. We hear all this stuff all the time that image is everything. And any time that we feel like there's been an assault on our image, I mean, it affects us to the core when things don't come off the way we'd like it or people aren't looking at us the way we think they should. Um, I uh, had a firsthand experience with this yesterday. Uh, you know, today's Mother's Day. And I was thinking, you know, I'm going to make sure that the yard is looking nice for my wife. Right. And I had a pretty busy day yesterday, but I was like, I'm going to quick just mow the yard, you know. And so I'm. I, I get everything, you know, gas my lawnmower up, and um, and I, I get it started, and I go about 15 feet, and I have some of these flowers that I don't know what happened. Somehow it ripped the air filter off my, my lawnmower. Now, my lawnmower, I have prided myself in having exceptional lawn equipment. Um, it, I have this, uh, my, I don't know, my wife is laughing, but I have this, I got this free lawnmower about four or five years ago. And I actually have duct tape on the front guard, okay? And then right where there's supposed to be a guard to keep all the grass into the mulching system, but it, it doesn't seal correctly, and it shoots right in your face. And, it's and you know, little rocks and sticks and stuff like that, it's, it's probably actually dangerous. So I've got a rag stuffed in there, and it kind of waves as I'm, I'm doing it. And, and I don't know what happened, so the air filter got ripped. It, immediately it stopped, you know, like, whoa, my lawnmower's not. I look at, do you know, this is like, it was like almost black, I, you know, and I was like, whoa. So I started beating against the, the pavement there, and, and I, well, I, got, I suppose you should clean this every five or six years, put that thing back on, thinking, now it's going to run really good, okay? It's been a little sketchy the last couple of years, but now i fixed the problem, right? I could not get it started, and I am just making a fool of myself, pulling this thing back and forth, and I'm like, oh. And then my neighbor whose guard is always impeccable, he's walking down the street, and he's kind of got a little little stride going there and he's watching me i'm like i'm not even dealing with this so i push my lawnmower behind these garbage bins you know and i'm i'm like and then i'm like maybe it just you know i'm I'm trying to start it you know and finally i just like you know just throw the thing it wraps you know the little cord wraps around the handle it's beautiful i thought maybe it needed to rest and so did i so i've got a little little teeth i try to get i cannot get it started here so Need to say, I've got a nice little path, about 15 feet mode, okay, and I will try to get the rest. But my image has been shattered, you know, because you know, my yard is, you know, I've got a hybrid of weeds and decent St. Augustine and stuff like that. They're, they're still standing, and the Dallas grass is waving tall. And my image is taking a hit. And we don't like that because, you see, we kind of think image is everything. We want it to look like we got it all together, right? We got, like, our cars we drive, our homes. Our hair, what we have left of it, and we want it all in place, right? We would like it to appear as if we have all got together. We, who we associate with, what we do. Image drives us because, you know, we are driven by fear. Think about how much you're driven by fear of what other people think about you. Insecurity. We, we like to have peace. We like to have a sense of stability in our life where it doesn't matter really what people are thinking about, but the reality is, is that very few people actually function that way. I'll tell you, image is everything was kind of the motto of the Jewish leadership 2,000 years ago. In fact, as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen firsthand how they don't like their image being tinkered or toyed with. And when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, remember they're singing Hosanna, son of David, the next day he's 
He comes into the temple and he actually flips over all their tables and they got these little concession stands running where they're charging all these exorbitant prices for all these little animals and pigeons and they got, they got a racket going on. They got their own coin system and Jesus flips their tables and says, this sort of thing is not it. My people are to become, to become a people of prayer and you've turned this place into like a den of thieves. And Jesus confronted him head on, and then he started telling parables. He's doing it publicly. He's doing it in the temple. If any one place that the Pharisees described the Sanhedrin felt like this was sacrosanct, you you could not touch us here. This is our place. It'd be the temple. And yet this is where Jesus shows up and starts telling these stories and indicting them on their poor leadership and how they've missed it and basically telling him, God's going to deal with you, and he's going to deal with you soon. They didn't like it. They didn't like what Jesus had to say. They were they were completely upset. Jesus was destroying their image in front of their people. And after all, image is what? Everything. And so they had to put an end to Jesus. Now, easier said than done. Got a little problem here. They're occupied by Rome. Rome allowed the Jewish leadership, Sanhedrin, to, to you know, make some calls on some certain issues but one thing you couldn't do, you couldn't kill a person, right? Okay, we'll do that. Thank you, we're in charge. And they had to get rid of Jesus. And so they kind of found themselves in a sticky situation. The only way they really are going to be able to get rid of this huge thorn on their side called Jesus was if they could get him to incriminate himself and then they just take him to the Romans and the Romans for sure would deal with him. And so if you're going to do that, you've got to be smart. You've got to be clever. In fact, you have to have a certain amount of brilliance because... Jesus is just no normal rabbi. This guy has wisdom. He has an impeccable life. There's never, he's never sinned. No, they could never find any sin. They tried to trump up some different charges. They could never find anything. And furthermore, he has, he's got power. Like, he can, he can heal people. He raises even the dead. And so this isn't going to be so easy, but you, you've got to do something. Because he is wrecking their life. They refused to believe that he was the Messiah, and he's identifying himself as the promised one of the Old Testament. And so you're, they found themselves in this jam. They've got to get rid of Jesus. And finally, when you get to Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, they've got it. They have finally identified the silver bullet that will put an end to Jesus. And, you know, wouldn't it surprise you, but it has something to do with image. Watch this. Look at verse 23 in chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he had said. You see that word trap? That is the word that we'd use to like ensnare a wild animal. And so they've been conniving and scheming and thinking and planning and trying, and they finally have got it. How is it that we could trap him in something that he said? You see, his life was impeccable. Jesus had lived an absolutely sinless life. In fact, he fulfilled all the law perfectly. He had to do so because one day, for those who will believe in him, he's going to give his righteousness to those who will trust in him because he was absolutely perfect in all that he did. So they wanted to catch him in something that he said. They wanted him to slip up verbally because they could find nothing wrong with his life. And look at verse 16. And they sent their disciples to him. So here you got these Pharisees. They've got people in training underneath them. And what they're doing is they're going to send their trainees, their disciples, and they're saying, we want you to run on this mission. Maybe this was their final proving ground. But if you can run this successfully, maybe this is all they needed to be full-fledged, recognized members of their 
Pharisaical party. They sent their disciples to him, but look at this in verse 16. The original audiences would have been shocked, but along with the Herodians. Okay, so the Pharisees, these are the ultra-conservative. They not only held all of the Old Testament, but they also had all these oral traditions, these laws that they placed upon themselves so they wouldn't break the laws that are found in God's word. So far did their oral traditions go that they actually thought that, that to follow them was to follow God. And if anybody that didn't follow their oral traditions, and they had numerous amounts of them, well, then you were a sinner. And hardly anyone could follow them. Even they had trouble following them. And so that's what they emphasized. No, did you see who they're linking arms with? The Herodians. If you got the Pharisees and the scribes on the ultra-right, the Herodians were on the ultra-left. They were synchristic. They actually, they actually were liberal. They took all the different meldings of whatever they wanted, especially the idea of being under Rome, and they actually melded it into their party. They weren't uh, necessarily a religious party, not even so much necessarily a political party. They were called the Herodians because they believed that the best way to keep the nation together was to be continually ruled by Herod's family. Now, once Herod the Great was killed, when he died, when he died, what happened is then he actually had his sons take over different parts of his kingdom. All of this was under Rome. And so they thought the best way for the Jewish people to kind of stay as an entity was to be under Herod. So that's why they're called the Herodians. And so they were very accommodating to the Romans. It almost looked like they were on their side when the Romans were occupying them. And these two camps, these were like unlikely people to be tied together are. Now, there's two ways people can tie themselves together. Love or hatred. These people rarely interfaced with each other. They actually hated each other, disliked each other, and rarely actually had anything to do with each other. But when they came to Jesus, they were going to make an exception. Jesus was such a thorn to them. For the Pharisees, he was completely overriding everything they taught and said. For the Herodians, they were worried that Jesus was going to draw more attention than he already was, and what would happen is that Rome would do what it's already done before and literally come and replace rulers. This had actually already happened um, there was a guy named Archelaus. He had been ruling Judea, and there was a, an uprising that took place. And because of that uprising, Rome said, you know what, Archelaus, you're gone. I don't care if you're Herod's son. We're going to start putting our own governors in place. The Herodians were very fearful that that would happen throughout Israel, and they'd basically be done as a nation. And so Jesus, drawing all sorts of people to himself, they saw this as a real bad situation, not only in Judea, but he was from the north. This could really invite Rome to clean house with them. So you have these two parties. They're all together, and they're worried about this situation with Jesus, but they've got the silver bullet loaded in the gun, and they've got their hitmen going out, these disciples, along with the Herodians. And look at this. You want to see what it looks like to butter someone up, to, to completely flatter someone in the fullness? Look at this. Teacher, see this in verse 16? We know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. And defer to no one. For you are not partial to any. I mean, talk about a total setup. Because they're going to actually have, see if Jesus can pick a side. And so they're setting him up. And do you know why they're coming across? You see, they're in the temple. Jesus has all these people around him. And remember, image is everything, right? You want to look like you're real sincere and devout and you're and you really are seeking after truth. Right. And so they actually have these statements made. They they say these things for appearance sake. 
But truly, that is not their heart. And then they unload the silver bullet, verse 17. This will most certainly lead to the end of Jesus. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? You could just hear a huge hush in the crowd. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar? Now, poll tax. This was the most despised tax that was in Israel. Now, let me, you know, we deal with some taxation issues in our country here. It is estimated that a Jewish family paid about 49% of their income in taxes, okay? You've got about 32% went to the Romans with all of their tax. You've got 12% that went to Jewish authorities for the upkeep of the temple, etc. And then about 5% was extorted out of you out of these tax collectors that were completely unethical. But the poll tax itself was seen to be like the worst tax. Uh, it's literally called the quinsos, and it's, it has the idea that we get the word census from it. It was like a head tax, and you paid it annually. It's like a tax you paid to exist. And so when you paid these taxes, they they not only supported the Romans and their armies and their temples to all these false gods and the lavish lifestyles of the high upper class of the Roman citizenship, but it also was a constant reminder. It symbolized their subjection, and no tax like the poll tax reminded them that they were subjected to Rome. They hated it. And this is what's taking place. Remember, I was telling you about that insurrection that happened in 86. What happened? There's a guy by the name of Judas. And he actually rose up and just said, no, we're not going to pay this tax anymore because we belong to God. and We don't belong to you. And what happened is they basically put this guy to death, Judas and all his cohorts. They actually crucified them and they ended this rebellion. And that's the time where Archelaus is shipped off and they start bringing in governors. And so this was a loaded question. They were setting him up to be crucified, and they had him. I mean, how would he get out of it? See, you know, there's not a lot of options here. If he says no, if Jesus says, no, it's not rightful, well, then bingo. You accuse him of treason, insurrection. You hand him over to the Romans. Hey, all the Herodians have to do is say this. Hey, we don't want what happened here about 24 years ago. We don't want it. This Jesus, he just said, don't pay the poll tax. Remember Judas and all those guys? Jesus is saying the same thing. We don't want him. We, we want to live peacefully. We're okay. We're trying to help our people understand that you're the leaders. Here's this Jesus. And, and Rome, they quickly kill him. This was a hot issue. You know, in 66, AD 66, this again became the issue. That poll tax, there was a huge insurrection Four years later, a guy, a general by the name of Titus, comes and Rome cleaned house. In fact, that's when the temple was burned. The Romans killed a million, one hundred thousand Jews. This was one of the leading issues, this poll tax, this head tax. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, you don't have to pay it. Well, okay, that's treason and insurrection. If he says yes, well, then the great mass of the Jews feel like this man can't be from God because This paying of the tax is kind of a recognition that the Romans own us. And this would alienate him from the masses of the Jews that actually hated this tax. You see, they had him. Jesus is either going to get himself killed or he's going to alienate himself from the masses and the people are going to walk away from him. And so they throw this in front of him. Well, Jesus, you know, he's omniscient. He knows all things. You know, 
He knows everything that's going on in your head right now. He knows everything about last week. He knows your motives. He knows your heart. In verse 18, Jesus perceived their malice. You could translate that wickedness. And he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? See, image is everything. Jesus said, yeah, you got a mask on. You got this mask on that, oh, you're a great seeker of truth and you're highly respectful and you walk in the ways of God and you want to know more. But in actuality, he says, you're a hypocrite. You're a feigner. You're an actor. That's what they called their actors. They called them hypocrites. Jesus says, I know who you are and I know what you're all about. Well, the crowd is watching because Jesus is going to get nailed one way or the other. Verse 19. He says, show me the coin used for the poll tax. Whoa. Everybody knows what this coin is. And and sure enough, and they brought to him a denarius. A denarius is worth about a day's wage. For a common laborer, soldier, he got paid a denarius. It was a very simple coin. It was highly prevalent throughout Israel, throughout actually the the empire. This this denarius would actually have a, it would have a a picture, a, a symbol, an icon of the emperor, the emperor Tiberius. And it has some lettering around it. It would say either like that he it's like divinity or the fact that he was the son of Augustus, okay? That he was divine, the son of the August one, the divine one. So it had a, a an image which the Jews absolutely hated because they call they considered it sacrilege. You shall have no graven image. You have a graven image on this coin. You have a guy calling himself God, and he's actually publicizing it because he puts it on his coin. On the backside of that coin, you have this, this woman, and she is referred to as the Roman goddess of peace, Pox. And, and on the backside, it would say, High Priest, Pontifex Maximus, High Priest. The coin was considered completely blasphemous. And yet they were forced to trade. And in order to pay for their livelihood, this head tax, they had to give one of these denarius. They were prevalent. They got one. Everybody's got one. Jesus wants to see one. All right. Sure. So they hand him one of these small little silver coins. You just see Jesus kind of looking at it and then showing it to them. And then he asks this question. Then he said to him, verse 21, Verse 20, excuse me. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Well, they all knew that. They hated it. They didn't even really want to touch the coin. And they said, well, verse 21, it's Caesar's. We know whose this is. It's, it's Caesar's. And I'm sure there was a long pause as they were wrestling with this. And then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God... The things that are God's. Whoa. 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 whoa, whoa. What, what did Jesus just do? He, 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 just, he just slipped out of their trap. He saw it. There was no escape. I mean, they literally had him encircled. He couldn't escape. And he makes this statement. He says, render, give back what you owe to Caesar. But make sure you recognize that if you owe something to God, which you do, your very lives, give it to God. Now, at this same, in just one sentence, Jesus automatically legitimizes the fact that, hey, if you're dominated by a government, if you are called to or asked to pay taxes, you do so. You pay 
what you owe. They, they, they reluctantly paid. I mean, the, the alternative was death, so paying the tax probably seemed better than death, so they'd pay it. But Jesus says, hey, whose image is this? Well, it's Caesar's. It's Caesar's coin. It's his country. You live in it. You pay the tax. On the other hand, give to God what is God's. You know, it's really interesting that we're coming to this text. Because uh, the whole idea of submitting to government, following their laws, paying taxes, not real popular. I mean, I don't like to pay taxes. Do you like to pay taxes? How many of you like to pay taxes? How about that? No one. No one. We don't really like that. In fact, if you know, we, you know, I think I remember in like American history, we actually uh, parted ways with England. It had something to do with taxation, right? Taxation without representation. Who's representing me? They're not representing me. I don't like taxes, right? It seems like we've kind of fallen back in the same old trap and you could pretty quickly easily go, I hate this, right? And I don't want to pay. And so Jesus, though, he makes this statement. He says, you know what? If it belongs to Caesar, pay him. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what is a believer's responsibility to government, okay? What, I just, since we hit this, and Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, what do, we, what do we actually owe our government? What is our responsibility? What is a Christian approach to our civic duties? You can, I put, I'm going to give it in three little simple words, and they actually all rhyme. How about that? Okay? So, like, you'll be able to remember. The first one is pay. you got to pay. God calls Christians to be good citizens. Let me give you a... A text, Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and then I'm going to read verses 5 and 7 as well. But listen to this. Just listen to what Paul wrote to the Romans. These were believers living in Rome. Okay? And remind you, Rome wasn't a really great government to be under. Okay? If you think you got it bad in the United States, you are mistaken. Let us go almost any place else in the world. Or North Korea. Okay? We have it really good, friends. But listen to what he says. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Did you get that? God actually establishes these authorities. And he says, and beginning in then verse 5, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, Devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whose custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Did you get that? God is telling you, I am actually establishing government. There is going to be no perfect government until Christ sets up camp on this earth. He's coming back and he promises to do so. In the meantime, we're going to live under governments that aren't that great and are going to have some issues. But if we owe taxes, we're to pay them. Let me just tell you this. In our country, you can actually vote for your leaders. You know that? If you don't vote, you cannot whine. Period. Okay? You have a great opportunity. In our country, you can, we can actually vote for our leaders. Vote for those who best represent your values. I mean, if you can't find one, pick the lesser of two evils. But find someone, but let me encourage you, vote. I, I'm not saying anything. I'm just communicating, all right? Vote. You have an opportunity to do so. And you must, because God has placed these as authorities over you, submit. And so you pay. Let me get, what do you do with your leaders? What's our civic responsibility? You pay. Let me give you the second one. You pray. You pay, you pray. 
First Timothy chapter two, verse one, he says this. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We are to pray for our leaders, pray that they would know God. They would know Christ. They'd have salvation. They'd have wisdom. They'd look to God's standards of right and wrong. They, they would actually hold to the revelation that God has given. God is the one who has established morality in the universe. He's the moral one. He has established what's right or wrong. Let's pray that our leaders would submit and yield to him. In fact, Scripture commands us to do. Let me give you a third one. We pay, we pray, and we obey. You pay, you pray, and you obey. We're to submit to human government, even its pagan governments. Jesus is telling them, you submit, you pay the tax. You don't like it? I don't probably like it either. You know, and we, we know that Jesus wasn't really fond of the taxes, but, you know, when he had to pay a tax, you know, he'd go send one of his boys out fishing, you know, catch fish, you're going to find a coin in their mouth, pay it for both of us, okay? But he paid it. And he's telling them, pay it. And so we obey. We submit to human governments, even pagan governments. Let me give you a verse on that. First Peter chapter two, verse 13. He said, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. God is keeping some semblance of order through his government, a government's role, punishing evildoers. They're supposed to reward those that do it right. I'm not sure how well we're doing on those. Sometimes we don't ever reward those who do it right. But nonetheless, God is saying, this is what I want to accomplish. And so this is what we do. Let me tell you a couple errors. First, one error is to first see the government as the enemy of God. Okay? I hate the government. And you do it like this righteous anger. And somehow in some Christian camps, it's all, I mean, they just jive on this sort of stuff. They almost attribute hatred for government as love for God. The Pharisees, that was one of their mottos. No? If you read the text, they're established by God. Let me give you another one. The other extreme view on government is to see the government as your savior. Okay? Like you actually see government as God. Whoa! They're going to do it. They'll accomplish it. They've got the plan. They're going to solve all the problems, all the educational problems, all the poverty problems. They're going to take care of everybody. Oh, praise God for government, because government's like God. Maybe it is. That's kind of the mentality. You want to stay away from both of those, those errors. Furthermore, I want to also say one other thing. It is not wrong for you to be involved in government work at whatever level. In fact, you got guys like Joseph and Daniel. These guys were key men in leadership of positions of high authority. In fact, the, the more Christians that we have in government who truly yield themselves to God, probably the better off we're going to be because we've got folks that recognize authority and are submitting to God first. And so, we talked a little bit about government. We're, going to, we're called to pay, pray, and obey. The only exception to that is if government tells us to do something that is in direct violation of the word of God. If the government says, you've got to kill babies, are we going to be like, uh, okay? No, because God values every human life. If government says, and this is already state law in some states, you euthanize adults. If they kind of want to die, pain's getting to them that day. Will we? No. If the government says you need to marry homosexuals, so we're going to start stripping away all of your little privileges that you have as a church, and you're not going to be a minister with any sort of license, etc. We're going to do it. 
No. Because God has given us his word and our primary allegiance is to him. But we will submit to the human authorities over us because why? We recognize they are from God. You see what Jesus is saying, though? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But this is what he's driving at. He's driving at that image is everything. Notice what he says in verse 21. And to God, the things that are God's. Do you know what? You and I, we are made in the image of God. Just like that coin had Caesar Tiberius's image on it. You have God's image upon you. Genesis 1:27. At the very beginning, God says this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. You see, man was created in the image of God. That means he is rational, moral, volitional, emotional, relational. We have characteristics like God that are in the image of God. Now, they're not perfect. And the problem was in the fall that this image of God became more severely marred. We once, with Adam and Eve in the garden, prior to the entrance of sin, we reflected the image of God as God intended. And yet with sin, sin brought us down. It depraved us. It made us bad. It, it marred the image of God. And yet, there's, it's still there. Every single human still has some semblance of the image of God. You see it in the fact that they can think and choose and feel and respond and initiate and act. Do not buy into the idea that you're some sort of like the epitome of evolution, that you've somehow risen to some sort of high level of self-existence. God has actually given you and I as humanity, as humans, something he has not given any animal, and that is his image. The ability to think and choose, the ability to, to process, to reason, to, to have this capacity to love even as God loves. The problem is, is that, is that humanity is completely marred by sin. So let me just tell you, you and I, we're created in God's image. So Jesus said, that coin's got Caesar's image. What do you do? You give it to Caesar. You and I, we have God's image. What are the implications of that? You and I were made to be given to God. You and I are created for him, by him. And the beauty of it is, is that God is redeeming a humanity. And that once we realize that God has sent Jesus this very one who is making these statements to completely pay the penalty for our sin, to take God's just wrath against all of our evil doing upon himself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we who believe in him can experience righteousness, life, forgiveness and renewal. You see, we're continually being made in the likeness of our Savior if we believe in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices. He's talking about the old self. You've, you've laid that aside. But then he says in verse 10, And you've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You see, when we believe in Christ... He is bringing about a renewal of God's image in you. 
that you are reflecting more and more what you were intended to be because of your relationship with Christ. And so that is one of the beauties of the gospel is that God is in the process of redeeming a lost humanity by bringing about a renewal, a life of Christ in his people where we're being renewed to the image of God as he intended. He doesn't want us to just stay as we are. He intends to change us through the power of Christ, and he actually gives us his presence. He places his presence in us. When they heard this, look at verse 22, and hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went their way. Do you know what? You and I, we were created for God. God loves us so much that he actually sent his son to die for us so that he would rise again and unite us with himself that we will continually reflect the image of God throughout all eternity. It is a process that starts the moment you believe. It continues throughout this very day until we come to be with him and we will be like him in those respects. This is God's plan. Let me just tell you, if you see yourself as one who's created the image of God and you see others that they are created in the image of God, this changes everything. I want you to try this. This week, as often as you can think of it, see yourself and remind that I am actually created in the image of God. I'm created for him, by him. And see others, the people around you, like your spouse, your kids, the people in the church, your coworkers, your classmates, the folks on your athletic team, your neighbors, consciously say they are created in the image of God. Some of them are so very marred by sin. Their life is broken. They think that image is everything. It's an outward image. It's a self-centered image. But in reality, image is everything. It's just that they don't understand that they've been made in the image of God to know God in his fullness through relationship with Christ. And so this week, try it. See yourself and everybody you come in contact with as made in the image of God. And when we realize that we're made in God's image, you know what happens? We begin to experience life in his son And it is a life of worship. You see, we're made for God, by God. That means that we're supposed to give everything about us. Our past, our present, our future, our dreams, our hopes, our failures, our resources, finances, our time. See yourself as completely given to God for God. You see, image is everything when we realize we are made in God's image to experience life in his son. This past week, I uh, heard Dr. John Maxwell give a little talk. And he said something that just stopped me right in my tracks. When I heard it, like, whoa, that was powerful. This is what he said. There are two great days in a person's life. The day they were born and the day they discovered why. Today, perhaps, is your day of discovery. Do you know why You were created. Why you were born? You were born to give yourself fully to God because you're created in his image to experience life in his son. And after all, image is everything. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this amazing text. Not only do we see Jesus set things correctly, 
by helping us understand our right role to government, even government we may not like at times, but understand our role before you, that you have created us in your image, that we might experience life in his son, in your son, that there would be a renewal to life, that we would freely give ourselves to you because you have your imprint upon us. If there's someone that's here today that has never truly trusted Christ, and they're buying in the image is everything in a self-centered, all-about-them kind of way, would they right now even be convicted of sin and pray with me and say, Lord, I have always lived for myself, and my life reflects that. But today I get it. I realize that you have made me for you. And all of my waywardness and self-centeredness and doing life on my own, that is all missing the mark. It's all sin. I turn from it, I repent, and I trust Jesus for life, for renewal, that your image might be accurately reflected in me. I praise you and I worship you. And I pray, Lord, that as a people, we would walk in the newness of life, that we would see others and ourselves as created in your image, meant and intended to experience life in your son. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.